Last week, for those who attended, was a joint evening uh, discussion about wise effort together with uh, Lama Surya Das, this American Lama, and myself, which was quite a lot of fun for me, just enjoying dialogue with him. And I thought I would follow up the topic of wise effort last week um, with a related set of teachings on intention or direction of heart or conscious aspiration or purpose. If one begins to look into Buddhist psychology and even more fundamentally into one's own heart and mind in meditation with a kind of mindful awareness and care that the silence of meditation can bring to us, we begin to notice a variety of energies, those of fear and grasping, those of openness or love, connectedness. And one of the energies that can be distinguished in, and described in Buddhist psychology is a neutral energy that's associated with will or the will to do called, sometimes it's called jetana in Pali or Sanskrit. And it's that quality that directs our action or our life. It also could be called intention in a certain way. And it's neutral in that this will to do or this energy that directs our life can be connected with anger and aggression and hatred or violence or greed. It can also be connected with tenderness or caring or creativity. Um, it's the energy, the impulse of life um, that then can be channeled in one direction or fashion or another. And by beginning to pay attention to this quality of intention, we begin to see the nature of mind to shape our world rather directly. So the beginning verses of the Dhammapada, the verses of the Buddha, mind is the forerunner of all things. We are what we think. All that we are arises with our thoughts. With our thoughts we make the world. Speak or act with an impure mind or heart, and trouble will follow you as the wheel follows the ox that draws the cart. And speak or act with a pure mind or pure heart, and happiness will follow you as your shadow, unshakable. So that the direction of the mind creates the life experience that we have itself. Rabindranath Tagore, the Indian poet, philosopher, said, most people believe the mind to be a mirror, accurately reflecting the world outside them, and not realizing the fact that the mind is actually the principal element of creation. So a little story, and some of the stories tonight are woven of stories from this past fall put together in this talk. A stranger walked from the high road toward the gates of a city. 
By the side of the road sat an old wise woman who hailed the traveler, Welcome. What kind of people are they who live here? The traveler asked. How did you find them in the home city you left? Asked the wise woman. Oh, they were gossips, mean-spirited, often selfish, she stated, difficult to get along with. You'll find the people of this city to be likewise. Later, a second stranger passed by and was welcomed by the old woman. What kind of people are they who live here? The traveler asked. How did you find them in the home city you left? Oh, they were fine people, industrious, usually helpful, open-minded, and easy to get along with. Ah, you'll find this city to be likewise. So that's a simple illustration of the power of mind to create our world. But it's much bigger than that. If we look, for example, at the modern world in which we live, you drive from Woodacre down to the uh, town or city of San Rafael, and there are all the buildings and streets and the public transportation and the bridges and schools and churches and homes and activities of people in the stores. And none of that was there a hundred years ago, pretty much. Um, and piece by piece, someone imagined it. Let's put a building shape like that over there and let's open a shop and put things in there and let's put a road there. And out of those imaginings then, gradually these things were created. But not only to create, equally to destroy. Cities, cultures, civilizations. All, if we look in human history, all that has been created and arisen in some way, then at some point later gets destroyed by somebody else who says, I don't like that there, I don't want that, I don't, uh, I don't like those people or what they're doing. And so another group of people have a different vision and destroy that and create something else. Pretty powerful stuff. It's not just the big things, but also the little ones that affect the way we live our whole life. There's a story um, that I read somewhere about an Eskimo hunter who asked the local missionary priest, if I didn't know about God and sin, would I still go to hell? Uh, no, said the priest, not if you didn't know about them. Then why, asked the Eskimo earnestly, did you tell me? <laughs> so there is a lot of beliefs, subtle and great, often unconscious, some conscious, that begin to direct the way our life unfolds from our mind. Because based on those, then there are these acts and will and intention. And the society knows it. I mean, the multi-billion dollar advertising industry understands it well. To create certain intentions, you need this. You want that. You should pay attention to this. Um, I'll read you a story apropos of the times here, unfortunately. What did you have in school today? A father asked his teenage son. 
Oh, we had lectures on sex, was the reply. <laughs> lectures on sex? What did they tell you? Well, first there was a priest who told us why we shouldn't. Then a doctor told us how we shouldn't. And finally, the principal gave us a talk on where we shouldn't. <laughs> Someone said that a nation gets the scandals that it deserves. Or rather, that the scandals of a nation reflect its consciousness in some way. You know, so that the mind becomes part of this process of the patterns that we all engage in, what we feed it, what we believe, then begins a direction. And as we start to meditate in the small ways, with awareness, we can begin to notice the moments before we act. It's like someone who decides to stop smoking and then begins to notice that they reach for the cigarette and start to light it up and take one puff and then all of a sudden remember, oh, I was going to stop smoking. But that whole thing happened before they noticed. And then with a little more attention, you can actually notice the reaching for the cigarette or the feeling in the body that's there. Um, but it's not just for that kind of habit. It's all the patterns. And we begin to see the relationship of our life from moment to moment built on intention, built on that which guides our actions from the heart or the mind. Now a few traditional Buddhist stories that speak of this. The first is about Dipankara Buddha, who in the Buddhist mythology was the Buddha before Siddhartha Gautama, um, a long time before one of them. And it's said that this Buddha, who also was wandering through the forests and towns of India, came to a village, was coming to a town, and it was announced in advance that a Buddha is coming to visit, and everyone got very excited. And they decided to make a beautiful path as an entryway to the village, and all the people got out and they cleared the woods and put down beautiful cloths and made a, made a way that he could walk and enter that was really honoring of this this Buddha, Dipankara Buddha. There was one man who got there late. He had his section of the path to do, and it was muddy. There was a puddle there. And there came Dipankara Buddha, who this man described as the most noble, beautiful, um, present being he had ever seen in his life in this story. And he felt so absolutely inspired but he realized he hadn't finished the path that he threw his own garments and his body down there and said, well, let him step on my, my robes, my clothes. At least his feet will stay dry. And as Dipankara Buddha stepped across his body, he made in his heart a vow. He said, whatever it would take to become like that man, to become like that being and live with such grace and presence, I will do no matter how long it takes. And as Dipankara stepped over him, he nodded and said yes, or smiled and said yes as an affirmation. And the being who was there in the mud with his cloak being stepped over was the Buddha of 2,500 years ago in this story, Siddhartha Gautama, who then took 100,000 mahakalpas to practice patience and compassion and steadiness, and truthfulness, and equanimity, and loving-kindness. Not just seeing what he would become, 
but vowing to do whatever it took to fulfill that perfection. So in traditional Buddhist mythology writing, it's filled with the power of stories of the heart's intention to become a Buddha or to become the chief disciple of the Buddha or to uh, share what one gains from spiritual life with others. That's my intention, to awaken others. Or even in the beginning of practice, one would sit in a meditation and begin by making a vow or an intention of the purpose of this sitting, of this meditation, of this walking. Even children know the power of the heart. So one of the favorite children's stories from the early tales in the Buddhist mythology a long time ago is the one that tells when the Buddha was born as a parrot in the forests of India, long before Siddhartha Gautama was born as a man. He was born as a parrot, a friendly and beautiful parrot, um, and she made friends with all the other creatures of the forest. But one day, toward the end of the dry season, a great storm arose, thunder and lightning, but very little rain, and when the lightning struck, it ignited the dry forest on fire. And a huge forest fire started, and all the animals began to flee. The parrot, who could fly away, began to look down and see her friends, the mice, the rabbits, the badgers, the other animals, running as fast as they could, but often not fast enough with the great flames and wind of the fire. So she dove herself into the nearby stream and got her feathers wet and flew over the forest and shook her feathers on first friend she could find, on a rabbit or a mouse, to try to give it some protection from the heat. And then she flew again through the heat and the flames and the smoke, got herself wet again and flew and found a little mouse or rabbit that she knew and sprinkled more water on it and was going back and forth in this story. And all of a sudden, Saka, who was the king of the gods at that time, felt his throne becoming hot. Now it's said that the throne of the gods become hot when someone does something unusual in this world, which means unusually good in this case. Um, the other kind of unusual we seem to have plenty of. But. And so Saka looked down and began to study what was going down, go, happening down there on the earth and saw this huge forest fire and this hopeless event of this tiny little parrot trying to save or protect what friends she could. And as he looked, he and the other gods laughed, but somehow his heart was touched by her, and he found himself looking more and more closely at the scene, and in a moment he tumbled off his throne and began to tumble down to earth, and, as the mind can do, as he paid attention to his body, it had turned into a great bird, an eagle, which soared down parallel to the parrot, and began to fly alongside her through the flames and smoke, and said, what are you doing? She said, I'm trying to get water to these poor animals that are dying. Could you help, please? He flew alongside for a while. But don't you know that it's really hopeless? This is a huge forest fire. 
she turned to him, she said, I don't need advice at this point, thank you. I could use some help maybe, but not advice. Got some more water, sprinkled it on another rabbit or a gopher or whatever it was. He flew on, but it's hopeless. She said, please, you know, if you're going to come along, at least do something of benefit. <laughs> flew back down in the water, got herself, and he kept flying and looking at her, risking her life, getting covered with soot and smoke and the flames and flying along. And he said, why are you doing this? And she just looked at him. He said, look at my friends. How can I not? It's so dangerous, flying along. And as he watched her, somehow he saw the sincerity of her heart. And it touched him. It touched him so deeply that a tear began to roll down his eagle, from his eagle's eye, down his eagle's face. And you know what happens when the gods weep. All of a sudden, there was great clouds that arose as soon as that tear wept down the cheek of the eagle. And the rain started to pour softly, and then more as the tears came, so touched was he by the courage of this one being to risk her life. And the rains came, and they touched all the places on fire and put them out. And the fire ended. And the parrot, all sooty and dirty, said, well, that's more like it. <laughs> ah, thank you. Went down to the forest floor where her many friends were safe from the spread of the fire. And the eagle flew around three times to pay his respects to this parrot, and then flew back up to heaven and said, someday something great will come of this being, as if that wasn't enough. <laughs> so that's what children know. Children hear these, have heard these stories for thousands of years, and they know it as well as you do, the power of the heart, of our vision or our intention. This is Mother Teresa. She says, I never look at the masses as my responsibility. You know, if we think about the whole big thing, it seems impossible. It's too much. We couldn't do it. I never look at the masses as my responsibility. I look at the individual. I can only love one person at a time. I can feed only one person at a time. Just one, one, one. So you begin, I begin. I picked up one person. Maybe if I didn't pick up that one person, I wouldn't have picked up 42,000. The whole work is only a drop in the ocean, but if I didn't put the drop in, the ocean would be one drop less. Same for you, same thing in your family, same thing in the community where you live, the church where you go. Just begin, one, one, one talked about this last week as wise effort, to be with what is here, this moment, and this one, and this one. So the Buddha's life, a Buddha's life, all Buddha's lives, you as Buddha, are based on the power of this intention or this vow. And in the myth again, or the story of Siddhartha Gautama, when he left his father's palace as a young man, and went out in the city, he saw the four heavenly messengers that reminded him of the limitations of life. He'd been in these beautiful palaces surrounded by luxury and pleasure and, 
Um, only the finest foods and the most wonderful music, most lovely of people. But there out on the streets, as you know, he saw a sick person, an old person, and finally he saw the first dead body he'd ever seen, a corpse. Remember when you saw the first dead body ever in your life? It's really a shock. I mean, you know it, but then you look and you say, wait, will this happen to me? This is what the Buddha asked. And as Charioteer said, it happens to everyone. And finally, he saw the fourth of the heavenly messengers, which was a monk standing at the edge of a forest who'd renounced the pleasures of the world to seek that freedom, some deeper freedom or truth that would liberate him from all the entanglement and sufferings of life. And when he saw these messengers, he remembered the vow he'd taken with Dipankara Buddha and said, yes, again, I will dedicate my life to the service of bringing compassion and freedom to everyone I meet. Now one thinks, as you hear a story like this perhaps, of the old country, at least India as the old country, and the old days. But it's not just the old days. Again, like that, those words of Mother Teresa illustrate, it's not just the parrot in India, but it's someone in modern times. My good friend Ajahn Sumedho, who is an American monk with my teacher Ajahn Chah, when they first came to the West, they visited our center in Massachusetts and they went to England. And then Ajahn Chah decided to leave Sumedho there to be abbot of the first little monastery in Europe of the forest monks. But they didn't have much of a place. The British Buddhist Society had this little flat in London, this little apartment. So there they were in this little flat in London. And Ajahn Chah said, no matter what, you have to go out with your begging bowl every day for food. Why? Because it's what monks do. And you teach people. And even if you go out every day and it takes you, you know, 20 or 40 or 50 or 100 years, sooner or later, someone will get the idea and begin to put food in your bowl. That's how they learn. It's your job to go out and their job eventually to learn that that's what a mendicant is. So he would go out every morning, Sumedho, with his bowl and said mostly he got nothing but some good exercise. And um, one morning, walking out with his bowl, he was walking through a park near this apartment. And a man came jogging by and stopped and said, what are you? And he said, I'm a Buddhist monk. I'm out with my alms bowl, if people would like to offer food. And he said, what are you doing in London? And he said, well, actually, I'm a forest monk from the forest of Thailand, but we were offered an apartment here, and we monks take whatever they give us, so I'm living in a flat down the street in London. And the man said, oh, a forest monk. Well, I happen to have a beautiful forest in Kent, in the most beautiful part of England, and I've been wondering what to do with it, how to preserve it. Would you monks take care of it for me? Could I offer it to you? And so he wrote on a little piece of paper, I hereby offer one forest to the forest monks, and placed it in Ajahn Sumedho's bowl, and that was the beginning of Jithurst Monastery, this wonderful monastery in England, going out with his bowl. So that's part of the story, but it has an, another chapter. Because um, Ajahn Shah heard about that, heard about them going out, with getting once in a while a little food, and he said, that's not really the reason that you go out. 
That's only one reason to teach people about the mendicant life. But an even more important reason is that you are one of the four heavenly messengers. And so it is your duty to go out every morning at, with your bowl and perhaps on one of these mornings on a London street there will be a Buddha waiting to see the sight of you and it will awaken in him that same vow of the past Buddha and the Buddha before him. So your job is to go out and walk no matter where you go so that others can, be, can see you and that, that that beauty of their Buddha nature be awakened in them. And the whole day of the monk's life in a monastery is devoted, um, in the beginning especially, to these kind of intentions. Wake up at 3.30 in the morning, the bell rings, and come together and chant and sit and walk and sit again. And the chants are praise to the Buddha and to the possibility of awakening the Buddha nature in all beings. Praise to the Dharma, that it's not in the past or future, but it's here and now to be realized by anyone who opens their eyes, opens their being, their heart. And then a reminder, a chant about sickness and old age and death, that it will happen to us too. And then a reflection on the nature of the body, of hair and skin and nails and teeth and liver and lungs and heart and blood and all the things the body contains with the question, who are you really? Are you this body? What have you come on this earth to do? We don't possess it. We don't own it. We get to use it for a time. And finally, the dedication of intention. Having remembered the possibility of awakening, knowing that life is short and that I do not control this body, let me use what I'm given to bring compassion, awakening, freedom in this life. And to go out in the morning with an alms bowl was one of the most beautiful experiences of my life. Go across the rice paddies in the morning just as the sun comes up. And people offer you this food, and you don't say anything. You can't say thank you for the, you know, nice fruit you gave me this morning. I really wanted a mango, you know. <laughs> you just have to walk very dignified, and they bow to you. Um, and sometimes they're extremely poor. So here are these very poor people giving you some of their food, saying, we are poor, but we still so value the life of the Spirit that we're going to support you with the little that we have. How do you thank them? The only way that you can respond is in your heart to say, I will take this food and I will live a life of attention and respect and compassion. It redoes your vows. The thought manifest, uh, the thought leads to deeds, and the deeds create habit, and the habit hardens into character, and the character shapes our world. So watch the ways of the thoughts with care and see that they spring for love and compassion toward all beings. One begins with the practice of creating intention. May I use the food that's given, the clothing, the robes that I have, the blessings of the life 
the health that I have that's been given to me. And may I take this and make something beautiful from it. And one recites these over and over and begins to, to sense what purpose we want to base our actions upon. Now it's important to understand that there's times when we're able to do this more easily than others. So that when I was with my father as he was dying a few years ago, um, he had a very hard time because he had never really quieted himself. And as a, a scientist and an atheist, basically, he didn't believe in anything after death except some great black abyss. Um, he was terribly frightened of that. And he was kind of paranoid anyway in his life. He was someone who was um, angry and frightened often. And in sitting with him in the last week in the hospital, um, difficult though he was, I loved him dearly. And I tried to talk to him and teach him meditation. It was impossible. You know, you can't take 15 minutes of meditation instruction and undo 75 years of practicing paranoia. It just doesn't work that way, you know. You really can see it, as Elizabeth Kubler-Ross says, we die in character in a certain way. And he was so afraid and so identified with the body of fear, there was no way to step out of it, nothing. Loving kindness didn't work for him. Finally, as it got late each night, he would say, please don't go, just stay with me. 10, 11, 12 at night, don't go, 1 o'clock. I would hold his hand just be here, because I wasn't so afraid. I wasn't afraid of pain, because I've sat a lot with pain. I wasn't so afraid of death, because I've been with death in many ways. And for him, the comfort was to have someone there who wasn't so afraid. It's so important, in some way, what we practice, because what we practice is both how we will live and how we will die. And in spiritual life, our invitation of awareness, of compassion, is really an invitation to live with a fullness in this moment, in the reality of the present. It's what the Buddha discovered under the tree of enlightenment that night, in which he sat and was attacked by Mara and had all the difficulties, and finally became utterly still and peaceful. And so all the possibilities, all the lives, he had led, as the story goes, in every form, the lives of many others, beings. And then in the midst of all those possibilities, he came to discover a place of absolute peace called nirvana, of stillness, of rest, of freedom in the midst of all doings, of all coming and going. And he said, oh, this is what I've sought not to grasp, not to resist, not to become something else, but to rest in the truth and the reality of this eternal present. And he got up to teach that to others. And when we discover it, because it's not in India, it's here. The eternal isn't someplace else, fortunately. It's here. When we discover it in a moment in meditation, we discover that it's always been here. And yet there's a certain irony 
Because even when we discover it, then we forget it. Have you noticed? <laughs> and so it takes a certain patience to be discovered over and over, as they say in Zen. Today's satori is tomorrow's mistake. Or what one is after is not enlightenment, but enlightenment after enlightenment, one moment after another. So the intention isn't to even get some state. Okay, now I have peace. I've got it. Ah, oh, it's great. I'm holding on to it. Ah. Oh. What is that? Ah. Oh. You can't breathe. It's this moment letting go and this one and this one. An openness to see that we possess nothing. That we are nothing separate from the world. We are the river of the world arising in this moment anew not to be grasped, but to be honored and rested in and loved. Now in meditation, one can practice with this quality of intention, aditana, so that as the meditation quiets down, which happens sometimes to you if you haven't experienced it, sometimes really deeply, sometimes in different ways, you can remember that place of peace, that moment, the first moment of kind of the the simple nirvana of not grasping or resisting, of just being. And then in the future, not by grasping, but by an invitation, you can say, may I again let go, may I again come to that place of peace, may I again remember this truth. And often it will come through the intention of turning our heart towards it. In the longer retreats, in the kind of deep states of meditation, it's possible at times to awaken very powerful states of concentration and insight. And so you can sit and make a kind of inner resolution. May the deepest experience that I've ever come to in meditation come back to me in the middle of a retreat when the mind is very still. And just by the intention of the mind, it will arise. All kinds of wonderful things happen like that should try a retreat if you've never done it. Quite fantastic. But even so, it's important to understand the limits of this creativity of intention in the mind. Because there's a kind of simplistic way of saying it. Well, the mind creates everything. Why did you create your accident? You know, or why did you create your cancer or whatever it happens to be? And then it becomes... Uh, kind of simple-minded in a way. It doesn't have a depth to it. Someone went to the Buddha to speak about these kind of things. You know, the power of the mind to do anything. And the Buddha said that the mind has great power, but it must be understood according to the laws of nature, the laws of life itself. So if someone says, I won't grow old, they can think it as long as they like. <laughs> or suppose you sit down in meditation and say, I'm not going to think. No more thoughts. None. Stop that. Does it work? No. Or I will never get sick. And the Buddha said it would be like this. It would be as if someone came along with a bucket to the great Ganges River and started to empty it out one bucketful after another saying, I'm going to empty this great river. Would that come to pass? 
or like a person who had a shovel and a hoe and a basket and decided to dig up this great earth and move it somewhere else, would that come to pass? It's not possible. Instead, what we need to understand is that the mind can be directed to what is possible. The mind is like a garden. And in this garden, if you plant an apple seed, you'll get an apple tree. If you plant a mango seed, you will get a mango. So depending what seeds we plant, and if we water and fertilize them and give them the proper attention, certain things will bloom. And it happens that your Buddha nature, your inherent freedom and compassion, is what is possible to bloom for you as a human being. You're not supposed to live in a body that lives forever. That's not our human lot. You're not supposed to live in a mind that has no thought. Anybody ever met such a mind? It's not what minds do. Okay. What's possible, you're not supposed to be a sunflower or a columbine. If you're a rose, you're supposed to be the most beautiful rose. And as a human being, it's to fulfill your own nature, which for the most part, it's there, it shines in you, we just forget it. When my daughter was seven years old, says this one artist, she asked me one day what I did at work. I told her I worked at the college and that my job was to teach, um, uh, I taught art classes, I taught people how to draw. She stared back at me incredulous, you mean they forget? <laughs> to fulfill our nature. I am an artist. When my second daughter was born, after a difficult labor, um, we had to have an emergency cesarean section. We were very worried. I was there at the hospital. I remember talking to the doctor about what I did for a living. The doctor confided in me and said, I wish I had been a musician because I love to play concert piano. Later, after my wife had the delivery, the doctor came out with the good news that my wife was fine and I had a brand new healthy baby girl. And while we were standing there, I was receiving the good news. Another doctor walked up to the physician who had just completed the cesarean surgery, delivering my child and said, excuse me, doctor, I just want to tell you that you performed brilliantly in there and it was an honor to assist you. I turned to my doctor and said, now tell the truth. You've just brought a new life into the world and saved another and you've had one of your colleagues tell you it's an honor to be in your presence. For heaven's sake, can you honestly say you wished you'd been a musician? The doctor grinned, nodded his head and said, it went pretty well in there. We both chuckled and he said, and I know exactly why too because this morning I got up early and for one hour I played Chopin at the piano. <laughs> so it's to honor our own nature in our own way. Very often when one begins uh, the practice of sitting in a retreat, certainly in many, many Buddhist centers, one begins with a bow and then what are called the four great vows. Um, sentient beings are numberless. 
I vow to awaken them all. The dharmas are boundless. I vow to master them all. Difficulties are numberless. I vow to overcome them all. The Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to attain it. These kind of vows one would find repeated again and again at a place, uh, at various Zen centers and, and so forth, where meditation practice happens. Now, it's really a kind of a big vow to take. Sentient beings, millions, billions, trillions of them, everywhere in all the universes, and I vow to awaken them all. That's quite something to say. But Zen West, or Wei Nung, says, Learned audience, all of us have now declared that we vow to awaken an infinite number of sentient beings. But what does it mean? Does it mean that I, Zen Master Wei Nung, am going to go out and deliver each one? And who are these sentient beings? They are found here within us, the delusive mind, the deceitful mind, the evil mind, the confused mind. We have to awaken them all in this fashion. Which is to say that we're not separate from other beings. And in a moment of true awakening or freedom, it's not us individually, me, mine, my enlightenment, my awakening, my seeing, my insight, but it's us in the big sense. It is us awakening. And then actions come naturally out of ease and compassion and steadiness. What's nice in the monastic practice, and maybe it's so coming for those of you who do regularly on Monday, is that there's a regular reminder over and over again. We take the vows not once, but each time we sit or each morning when we come together, remind ourselves of a dedication. What is the direction of our life? And repeating it over and over, it begins to turn the heart and that direction. Also, you realize that it's, it's not a product, but a process. As someone said, there's no enlightened retirement. You can't get to a certain state and say, okay, now this is it. Remember I've read about the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina. Twenty years ago, the mothers went to the plaza in front of the presidential palace to confront a bureaucracy of horror. The mothers were fed up with feudal visits to military chaplains who wore boots under their cassocks and the complaint office of the dictatorship who ignored inquiries about humans that they were systematically kidnapping, robbing, torturing, and killing. When the women congregated at the plaza, the police snapped at them to keep moving, so the 14 mothers walked the plaza in slow circles. They kept coming back to protest, braving night stigs, poli sticks, police dogs, even military spies who infiltrated and killed three of them. They say the mothers of the plaza were fearless, says the eldest, Maria Anto Antocoles, now 85, who walks with slow and steps and enormous dignity, but we were scared to death. We learned to walk with fear, to live with fear. We had an obligation, in spite of everything, to find our children. We never found our children, she said, 
But in that plaza we went to school. We told our stories over and over. We cried together. It was our educational ac academy. It saved us from the madhouse. At 325, the plaza would be as empty as a desert. And five minutes later, the mothers would appear like plants growing out of the subway station, the side streets, and people would come and say, who are you, teachers, pensioners? What are you protesting? It spread by word of mouth. And when the great poet Neruda heard about us in Paris, he said, ah, oh, the mothers are out. The military have already lost. I read that story recently, but in a way I could tell it over and over again because it really speaks of that power of the heart, that power of our intention or our dedication over all things. These are big things. A beautiful place to notice it is in speech because as we speak, we can sense the reflection of the heart in our words. And we can say the same words with one intention, to love or to learn or to understand. You know, why did you do that? Or we can say those same words, why did you do that? You know, to judge or criticize or close off. And they, those intentions create an entirely different response, don't they? Pay attention during the week and notice the intentions as you speak to another. Is it to communicate, to love, to connect, to understand, or to criticize, or to defend yourself, or to grasp? And you'll begin to see the power of these intentions to shape our life. What our meditation and our awareness points to is a freedom that's possible not to alter the circumstances of life, but to alter that spirit in the midst of them, in the midst of this mystery. Because we really don't know where we're going. We're just in it, aren't we? As Zen Master Dogen says, he said, a fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims, there's no end to the water. And a bird flies in the sky, and no matter how far it flies, there's no end to the air. Now, if a bird or fish tries to reach the end of its element before moving in it, this bird or fish will not find its way. When you find your way, when you find your place where you are, true practice occurs and awakening happens. This is actualizing your practice. For the place, the way, is neither large nor small, neither far or near. The place is not in the past or the future. The place is to be discovered when we awaken just now. So what we do, we don't control the whole dance around us, but we have a freedom, the absolute freedom in this moment. We don't even know where we're going, really, do we? I mean, who knows what's going to happen this evening afterward or tomorrow? or next week. You didn't even know how this talk is going to end, do you? Hmm? And whether that sweet baby back there will laugh and gurgle or go to sleep or cry, nobody knows, not even the baby, right? It's always like that. It's something new. It's a bit like Braille. 
if you want to find your way, said uh, um, St. John of the Cross, you must close your eyes and feel your way in the dark. Find the true path. I like this story from my dear friend, Franco, Frank Ostaseski, who runs the Zen Center Hospice in San Francisco. He says, the day before his death, Patrick was in a waking coma. His face was full of tension, his head thrust back, the muscles in his throat were tight and constricted. Each breath was a struggle. Clearly this was another stage of dying, but to me something seemed stuck. A famous teacher with experience in these things told me that his spirit was trying to leave his body and that I should touch the top of his head to show the way. A physician told me to increase the morphine to relax his breathing. A body worker told me to hold certain pressure points on his feet to relieve the tension. I tried them all, but nothing changed. Instinctively, I just wanted to wrap myself around him. I climbed into bed, cradling Patrick in the curve of my arms. I remember rocking him back and forth, and as I did, I began to sing sweet lullabies to him. Not the nursery rhyme kind, but the ones you make up as you go along, words and sounds randomly, just love sounds, I call them. Every parent has done this for a sick or frightened child. As I sang softly in his ear, I kissed his forehead. My hands knew what to do, though there was no goal in mind. My fingers gently caressing his throat, stroking his face, then my open hands circling his heart. We lost all sense of time. I could feel him sink into me, my body cushioning what was left of his bony form. Eventually, his throat began to relax, and his head came forward, his eyes opened. They looked relieved. After, I wonder if I had done the right thing. Maybe I should have followed the teacher's advice. Had I pulled him back from some near-death state? Stopped some process of release? I don't know, really. I do know that the heart has to be soft before any of us can be free. And I think that's more like it for us, that we sit and walk and meditate and see all these things come, our memories and our plans and our hopes and fears and all the things we're involved with. And then we begin to sense that in the midst of that is the possibility of compassion now of freedom now in this moment with this circumstance and that our aspiration or our intention can turn toward that. We begin to look at what our intentions are to serve, to awaken, to love, or for security or comfort or control. What are we looking for and where does that lead us? Now there's a danger in speaking about this quality of intention or aspiration in this talk because it can be confused somehow with a wrong meaning of will or effort, like struggle somehow. That if only I could make the right effort to awaken or to serve everybody or hold everybody like that story, you know, and not be who I am. And there's really only one wise effort, as we spoke about last week. 
And that's the effort to be present, the energy to awaken. As Alan Watts talked about it in his book, The Taboo Against Knowing Who You Are or Who We Are, it's the effort, if you will, to remember who we are. Because we fall asleep and forget the mystery of this life, the possibility of living as the Buddha that we really are. And then we wake up. Such a great little baby. (laughs) Then we wake up. The Indian story you remember, the baby in the womb sings to itself, oh, may I not forget who I am. And then the song changes after birth. Dear me, I'm beginning to forget already. Don't you forget. (laughs) You remember where you came from, little one. So the idea isn't to make ourselves different, but in the end, it's to be true to our hearts in the deepest way. We are what we seek. All the love, the wholeness, the freedom, the compassion that is there in the world is our true being. It is there to be found in a moment in each of us. And it's not that it comes in. Everyone knows that the drop merges into the ocean. Few know that the ocean merges into the drop. That we share it with all things. We are what we seek. I remember seeing um, Ramdas, as I talked about earlier in the year. And one of the things he said in his halting way, because he can't speak so quickly now after the stroke, said, I can't see very many people now because I don't have so much energy. He smiled, he said, but I try to have a moment of truth with everyone that I see. What an intention to have. What an intention. And if you go in India to Gandhi's tomb, which is this great um, arcade of stone wall along the banks of the Ganges River outside of Delhi with a great green lawn going down to the river edge where Gandhi's body was cremated. And it has some of Gandhi's sayings carved in the stone in the middle, in the biggest place. It has that saying, before you act, think of the poorest person you have met and ask, will this act have any benefit to them? And that was his guiding intention. Imagine living a whole life from that intention from Gandhi, let our first act every morning be this resolve. I shall not fear anyone on earth. I shall fear only God. I shall not bear ill will toward anyone. I shall not submit to injustice. I shall conquer untruth by truth, and in resisting untruth, I shall put up with all suffering and bring freedom to all that I touch. Gandhi's intentions. So together with wise effort that we spoke of last week, one begins through the quieting of the mind and the opening of the heart to hear the intentions that are there in our life and to sense or know that we can choose those intentions, choose our response in any moment and that thereby 
lies, therein lies our freedom. Let's sit for a moment. You might ask yourself in this moment of stillness, what are the intentions or aspirations which guide your life? And whatever they are, meet them with compassion even if they're fear or come from the body of fear, they can be respected. And maybe ask, what are the deepest intentions that you can choose from your heart? Let me ask you a couple of questions and then we'll end for the evening. Maybe two or three people. Um, what do you know about the power of intention? Does anyone have a experience or understanding that they know about this power of aspiration or intention of the heart in their life? Anyone seen something in themselves they would share? Please. I find that when I'm, um, find it more and more as, as I continue with my practice that my intention is to come from my heart. And I find that in the moments that I do that, I receive so much energy and so much joy that it, it just fuels me for the next intention. So it becomes like a channel. She said, I've made an intention in my practice to relate to the world from my heart, from love or openness. And I find that when I remember to do that, then so much more comes to me of energy, of um, openness, of life, of, of goodness, that it fuels the next moment of saying, yes, I will continue to be open. So it's for her, it's circular in some way. It feeds itself. Anyone else, please. I've had sort of the reverse. Um, I've had someone say to me when they thought that I was feeling ill or saying something that was in, sort of hurtful, I guess. They said, what did you hope to accomplish by that? What was your, what did you intend? Mm. And just that way of looking at things made me 
what was it that I was trying to accomplish and, and so this is beautiful. This is the reverse. She said, when I was doing something that someone considered being hurtful or ill will in some way, and they stopped and looked at me and said, what, did, what was your purpose in doing that? What did you hope to accomplish from that? She said, and I had to take a step back, it sounds like, and reflect, well, what did I? Why was I doing that? So again, it's the awareness brought back to the heart. Thank you. One more, anyone. Please. Well, um, I'm making an effort to uh, practice loving well in each situation that I can can notice and pay attention and to bring my awareness to everything, it, wherever in small situations, and just to have that as an intention to practice and, and forgive my mistakes mm. that I make inevitably and notice the sometimes the difference between the intention I might have brought and the results I might have created mm. and not and to just not judge that mm. harshly. So he said, my practice is to pay attention to this intention itself and to make the effort to be present and loving with each person or each moment. And that also requires, he said, um, regularly forgiveness, because sometimes it's successful and sometimes it's not, or he doesn't do it in a skillful way. So to have that intention, it's to make it over and over again and to be willing to let go of whatever happened as the result of it and make it again. So um, let's do one little chant and then we'll end. And the chant is just an opening of the sound of the voice and the body, with the sound ah, kind of letting go. We'll chant that together and then go out into the cool air of the night. It's gotten so stuffy in here again. Got turned off. Sing the sound. Ah, 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 Take the time to be still during this week, to be sit in silence or walk outside, and to listen and remember your heart's intention, your deepest intention. Let that guide you through your days. So thank you.
Oh, remember I have these keys up here with a little black leather thing on it. If anybody's missing their keys, a woman from the women's room.